0: Hello and welcome to the Adventure Podcast. This podcast is about helping listeners learn from and meditate on our sermons from anywhere at any time. Thanks for joining and let's get started. So I want to start this lesson today with a statement because sometimes it's easier to hear what you fear than what is actually said. And some of you get really afraid when we talk about the Bible and whether to take it literally or not. And uh, so I'm to lay this out as clear as I can in your notes. Here we go. The sole basis of our belief is the Bible, composed of 66 books of the Old and New Testaments. We believe Scripture in its entirety originated with God and was given through the instrumentality of chosen men. Scripture thus at once and the same time speaks with the authority of God and reflects the backgrounds, styles, and vocabularies of the human authors. We hold that the scriptures are infallible and inerrant in the original manuscripts. They're the unique, full, and final authority on all matters of faith and practice, and there are no other writings similarly inspired by God. That is what I believe. That is our official position as a church, and yet we will have people who will say to us things like, you know, how could you take the Bible literally? And just the way they ask the question already tells you it's an insult, right? So, Let's talk about literally because literally is literally one of the most abused words in the English language People abuse that one. They say things like it literally scared me to death Strange that we're not in the funeral home with you right now, right? The food was literally out of this world. Well, then how did you eat that? When he got the news, he literally fell apart. Yuck, that'd not be cool. Lives can literally depend on distinguishing between literal and metaphorical, between something that's given as a literal truth and something that's given as a metaphorical truth. For example... If Lisa Ashby says she's going to kill Greg, we understand, we understand that she is annoyed with him and plans to express that annoyance in strong language as soon as they are alone. Right? So we understand it's a metaphor. But if you have a friend who says, I'm literally thinking about killing myself, you would do well to take that literally. So both literal language and figurative language can describe a reality. We can use, well, we can tell lies with literal words. Oh, I love your dress. We can speak the truth through a metaphor. That dress isn't her biggest problem. <laughs> and what's interesting is when it comes to truth, the Bible reveals some of its deepest truths through figurative language, through metaphors. So the real question isn't, how can you take the Bible literally? The real question is this. Is it inconsistent to read some verses literally and others not literally? Is there an inconsistency if I read this verse and say, well, this is literal? Or I read this verse and say, well, no, this is metaphorical. And I have a lot of friends who like to do that. They want to, anything they disagree with, they want to make metaphorical. So a verse can tell a story that is not literally true. Yet that same verse can express a literal truth. And we know that because our conversation during the day at work and at home is littered with metaphors, with figurative language. I busted my gut working today. Unless you had a hernia, you didn't bust your gut, right? It's a metaphor. I love you with my whole heart. And not just two chambers to the left. (laughs) You're killing me, Smalls. (laughs) So we understand metaphor is with us all the time. Humans find metaphors Funny. We find them memorable. We find them emotionally persuasive. Why? Because we're wired for word pictures. They ignite our imagination. They emotionally bond us with the person who's telling the story because we've all worked hard. We've all completely loved someone. And those metaphors work because the relationships work. Metaphors build relationships. But somehow we forget that when it comes to scripture. When Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, he's not claiming to be a farmer. He is tying us back to David's description in Psalm 23 of God being the shepherd. And Jesus is tying himself, he's revealing to us that he is one and the same with God. When Jesus says, I am the true vine, he's not claiming planthood. What he's saying is, Israel was the vine, and I'm the source of Israel. I'm what Israel has drawn life from. So what happens is Jesus, in those cases, is inviting us to reflect on some Old Testament metaphors to discover something about him. So let's talk through some of this stuff. All right, number one, people have often misunderstood the metaphors of Jesus. You know how when you meet somebody for the first time, their sense of humor is really hard to detect? You're trying to decide, is this guy funny or an idiot? Right? That's what happens to us. Jesus ran into some of that same stuff. I mean, have you ever met Bruce Eberhardt? Okay, if you haven't met Bruce Eberhardt, we're going to have him stand up here. And you just come up and try to have a conversation with him today. Because if you take everything literal, you'll never come back. Or at least into a room that has Bruce in it. So, some people want to say that the entire Bible is a metaphor, that none of it is serious. None of it should be taken Literally. And that should be taken as a fact. And what happens is they misunderstand how the scriptures are written and how that works out. And we'll talk about that. But when Jesus was in the temple, remember when he's in the temple and he tied the knots in a rope and he flipped over all the tables inside the temple. Remember that? People were mad at him, and he turned as he's flipping over tables, and he looks at this group of hypocrites. Here's what he says, John two: Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up what they exclaimed it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you could rebuild it in three days now what's going on is jesus knows what they're thinking and already we're just two chapters into the book of john and they already hate jesus so much they're trying to figure out how to get rid of him he knows he can tell they're thinking we gotta wipe that guy out he needs to sleep with the fishes or whatever your favorite soprano thing is right This guy has got to go. But watch what happens. Verse 21. John explains. But when Jesus said this temple, he meant what? His own body. Because that's what they were trying to figure out. We got to kill this guy. A couple nights later, a Jewish leader by the name of Nicodemus came to Jesus in the middle of the night. And he's trying to talk to Jesus about getting into the kingdom of God. And here's what Jesus says in John 3. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Now here's the metaphor so you don't miss it. We understand this metaphor, right? Unless you are what? Now, we know that that means to, you know, you get a new life. You start over. God erases all your negatives in your past and gives you the ability to build positive going into the future through salvation. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 4 he misses the metaphor. What do you mean? exclaimed Nicodemus. How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? I can tell you right now, his mom is happy. This is a metaphor. All right. But he's missing the point. Now, again, not long after that, Jesus broke several cultural barriers by going in and asking a Samaritan woman for a drink. And we won't get into all those burgers she broke, but watch the conversation. So she's doing a little sparring with him, John 4. Jesus says, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you're speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you what? Living water. There's the metaphor. She doesn't get it. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket. She took him literally. People have frequently misunderstood Jesus. But sometimes Jesus used metaphors and figures of speech to express a startling, transcendent truth that was going to blow their minds. But he had to kind of slow walk them to that epiphany. So because Jesus used so many metaphors, does that mean everything Jesus said? Everything we read about Jesus was a metaphor? You know, with any conversation... When you talk to someone, even someone you met for the first time, parts of it are going to be intended literally, other parts are not so literally. How are you today? Which part of the day? (laughs) Is it 10 yet? Right? Have I had my two cups of coffee yet? Or, man, I'm so tired I feel like I've been hit by a truck. Okay, you get the I'm so tired part, right? That's the literal part. The metaphor part, am I claiming to have been hit by a truck? No, so you don't take that literally. But you understand that's a metaphor. Usually it's easy to tell when wordplay is going on. But when the New Testament writers emphasize that Jesus was literally and physically raised from the dead. We can see that from the context that it's not a metaphor. Some of my my professional peers want to make it a metaphor. It's not a metaphor. He was physically raised back. Yet some of Jesus' most deep teachings, most important teachings are expressed metaphorically. Matthew chapter 7. You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad. We all broke out in song. Um, And its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow and the road is difficult and only a few ever find it. So the metaphor, the use of metaphor there is really obvious to us. but there are some other times when people who absolutely love the Lord have absolutely committed their lives to him still disagree on whether something's a metaphor or not. Watch this from Luke 22. He took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, this is my body, which is given for you do this in remembrance of me after supper he took another cup of wine and said this cup is the new covenant between god and his people an agreement confirmed with my blood which is poured out as a sacrifice for you listen during the protestant reformation there was a lot of human blood got shed in arguments over this people literally killed each other arguing over this are these words metaphors or was jesus saying he's literally taking it the moment you take communion when you place this in your mouth this becomes human flesh and this becomes human blood or is he using it as a metaphor that we need to take his sacrifice and internalize it well I think given all the Old Testament prohibitions on ever eating anything human (laughs) the metaphor becomes rather obvious. All right, number two. People have often misunderstood the miracles of Jesus. A lot of people say, well, you know, Jesus metaphorically healed them. That's not a real story. Let me give you a couple of examples. So in Mark 2 and Luke 5, there's the same story where a, a man's paralyzed and his friends bring him to Jesus to get him healed, And they get there and the house is so crowded nobody can get into the house. And so they actually go up on the roof and they tear a hole in the roof of somebody else's house. And they lower him down with ropes right in front of Jesus. And so when Jesus sees the man there, I think, I gotta tell you, I think Jesus laughed through this whole thing. This is hysterical. Seeing a guy get levitated down That's a trusting guy. I mean, you don't like it when you're out of control. Imagine being a paraplegic and having other people in control on this, in the air. And when they let him down in front of Jesus, remember what the first thing Jesus did was? Your sins are forgiven. Now this ticked off everybody. These guys didn't want his sins forgiven, they wanted his body fixed. (laughs) This guy was open to whatever. Just don't drop me. The hypocrites that are in the room are saying, he's blaspheming. He said he could forgive sins. Remember what Jesus said? Which is the harder thing for me to do? Heal this man and make him get up and walk or forgive his sins? And they're all looking at him going, well, obviously anybody can tell him his sins are forgiven. The hard thing would be to make him get up and walk. And Jesus says, so if I could make him get up and walk, then I could also forgive his sins too, right? (laughs) Because I would be doing the harder thing first, according to you. And they're like, yeah. So Jesus says, yo, get up, roll up your mat, get out of here. (laughs) The guy stands up, rolls his mat and leaves what's Jesus doing did Jesus forgive his sin yes did Jesus physically heal him yes but what Jesus is showing us is that really what's going on inside of you is more important than what's going on around you he cares about both but he cares more about you than he cares about your problem in Luke chapter 5 same chapter Jesus calls his first fisherman disciples to follow him And they don't know for sure who he is. I mean, they know who he is. They've seen him teach. He comes down to the beach and he's watching them. They're not very far out into the water. And he's asking them, how's it going? "Eh, Nothing. Another day, another shutout. And Jesus goes, throw your nets on the other side of the boat for a minute. And they're like, there's nothing out here. We've been fishing this whole area. Jesus says, throw your nets out on the other side. So they did it. They're, grud- they're doing it begrudgingly, by the way, but they did it. And immediately, their nets were so filled with fish, it started to tear the nets and pull the boat, tip the boat into the water. And these guys are freaking out because they think they're going to die. But as they think they're going to die, they are having the best catch of their lives. And when they get ashore, Jesus tells them, you think that was fun? Follow me because I want to make you what? fishers of men. He used a literal miracle to establish with them a metaphorical truth that was going to take on. What he's doing is he's pointing them to God by doing what only God can do. All right, number three. People have often misunderstood the parables of Jesus. So you and I in Western culture we tell stories differently than they told stories in the ancient middle east so in the ancient middle east the metaphorically true while not exactly literally true storytelling thing was a normal way it was a complex thing but it was how they told stories and so you see that in jesus's parables in fact when jesus tells what's probably one of his, if not the most important parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan, when he's telling that, Jesus does not stop and say, I want to tell you a parable. Jesus just starts off. It's a guy coming on the road from Jericho toward Jerusalem. They all knew the road. It's a bad road. And basically, what he describes, the events are so realistic that in their minds, it's like he's recapping an episode of CSI. <laughs> All right, so he's, they're listing potentially racist man traveling alone in bad neighborhood muggers beat them leave them for dead along the road at least two passers by don't stop to help a kind minority man comes along and helps even pays for medical care then we look into each actor and the possibilities of why they didn't help because these guys are on their way I mean, we're looking at what did they why did they do what they did that day And we find that the two passersby, probably on their way to work in the temple, had plausible reasons for not stopping. Because if they would have stopped, he looked dead. If he was dead and they touched him, or if he died while they're touching him, they're unclean. And they don't get to go do their two weeks of work in the temple. And that messes everybody else up. I mean, right? You've been working with people at work having COVID. Not showing up and dumping all their work on you. Similar deal. These guys, if they would have touched him, that would have left more work for everybody else in the temple. And so what we begin to see as this story plays out, we begin to see that Jesus believed the most important way to serve God wasn't in the temple, but on the street where people needed help. And the most surprising element of the story is the hero. And the strangest thing to our modern ears is the absence of any clues about whether or not that was an actual event. Was Jesus describing something that had just happened that he knew about? Or was he just making it up as he went? Well, so if the story's not literal and it's just a metaphor, the truth that comes from it is literal and life changing. Number four, people have often misunderstood the Bible's presentation. Ignorance of how the Bible presents things has created so much difficulty, so much trouble. The Bible is not written like the Quran where one guy sits down and writes it in order and every later verse supersedes every earlier verse. I mean, if you read the Quran and the first part, if it says, love everybody, but then a, two verses later, or however many verses later, it says, no, we're going to hate this particular group... This one is the one that takes over this one. There's no more love, everybody. Each verse supersedes the one before. That's how the Quran's written. It's not like sitting down and reading a novel by a single person where everything is happening in chronological order and you can start at the beginning and just follow this whole timeline except for maybe the occasional flashback that begins with a heading that says 12 years ago... So the Bible is a sophisticated collection of writings. There's many different styles of writings, many different genres in there. The Bible's better understood as an anthology, a collection of a lot of different books that tell a single grand overarching story. Or if you're really into literary stuff, it's a meta-narrative. Specifically, the Bible contains 66 books under two major divisions. The first 39 books were mostly written in Hebrew and are commonly referred to as the Old Testament. The second set, 27 books are known as the New Testament were written in Greek. These 66 books span stories that occurred over about 4,000 years of human history with as many as 40 different authors writing over a 1500 year period represented are many diverse cultures, many diverse civilizations and backgrounds and writing styles and genres. Some of the Bible is written figuratively, so it's all, it's all prophetic out in the distance. Some of it is written in poetry, which is really hard to read because we don't read Hebrew. <laughs> it doesn't rhyme when we read it in English. Roses are red, violets are blue, some poems rhyme, this one don't. That's basically the book of Psalms translated into English. All right. So you have all these different things. So you need to do a little understanding there. But let's talk about some of the ways that ignorance creates problems. Hey, ignorance of biblical writing styles is sometimes a problem because sometimes people see a contradiction where there isn't a contradiction. Case in point. In Genesis 2, God tells Adam, you can eat of any, any fruit from any tree, in the garden, except one, right? That one you don't eat because on that day you will die. Genesis 2, 17. For in that day you eat from it, you will surely die. Now you go to another verse, stop far down, chapter five. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. And so they want to point and go, wait, it says the day he eats of that tree, he's going to die. But this says he lived 930 years after he ate from the tree. Some people see that as a contradiction. But they forget about metaphor. They forget about the poetry of it. That the sin did bring about his spiritual death that day. But his physical death came later on. All right, another one, B, ignorance of how teaching was done in ancient times. So you have the gospels, the gospels all speak with one voice about Jesus identity and his mission and his message. But there are some differences in the gospels, especially in ordering things, the, the order of how stories happen or in detail. And some of those are taken as contradictions. For example, Matthew 12, 30, Jesus says, anyone who isn't with me opposes me. And anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. Now, Mark 9, Jesus says, anyone who is not against us is for us. So which did he say? Did somebody mess this up? Is one of them lying? So Jesus taught the same story more than once. He often taught in paradoxes. A paradox is a statement or proposition that seems self-contradictory or absurd, but in reality expresses a possibly deeper truth. So to use a paradox where you say one thing in contrast to something else is to invite deeper thought. In other words, engage the gray matter in your head here. Today, we love the use of paradox. One of the most popular, most famous books ever written on your required reading stuff for most of you when you went to college Maybe when you were in high school, started like this. Charles Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Which was it? He goes beyond that. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. What's he doing? He's inviting us to look at it and look at it more deeply and reflect on the truth that's in it. But that we use paradox all the time too. We say, well, you know, less is more. Darned if you do. I heard that. The pen is mightier than the sword. Those are paradoxes. Jesus loved paradoxes. It was a real, it was a normal way of teaching in the Jewish culture. Well, let's go to another level with that. So rabbis back then were a lot like politicians with stump speeches now. A rabbi would travel and go to town to town and teach the same thing over and over and over be the same lesson over he's spreading his message and sometimes when he would go from town to town he would even repeat the same miracles for example Matthew 14 Jesus feeds 5,000 men plus women and children he's five loaves and two fishes the next chapter Jesus feeds 4,000 with seven loaves and a few small fish and some people look and go look at this it's a contradiction You know what? We have no idea. Jesus may have fed thousands of people a dozen times, but it's not all recorded. It's not all recorded. You know, I'll tell you, I'll give you a good example of that. We have three weekend services here. The first service of the weekend is on Thursday night. And you may hear someone say, man, were you in church this weekend? Go, yeah, I was. Go, I love it when, when we sing that Graves in the Garden song like we did this weekend. And the other person there may go, We didn't sing that this weekend. No, we did. No, we did not. What'd they do? Two different services. Both are still telling the truth, one is not lying. We use the same listening guy at all three services. We do. And the words in the the words in the lesson itself, though the points aren't going to change, but the words are going to change in the teaching. You know why? Because I get bored. I'm teaching it three times, and I've been studying it for the better part of a month before teaching it. And so I change it a little bit to keep it interesting for me. And then Dave Lang's here all three services. One of them's going to get through to him. I'm just never sure which one. So I'll just keep launching in his direction until I see it get him. Then I can go on. So Jesus clearly taught the same lessons in more than one place. And sometimes he taught the same lesson, but with a different story. So because of that, it's important to realize there's a lot of what Jesus did. Not everything Jesus said and did is in scripture. In fact, watch this, the last verse of John. From John 21. Jesus also did many other things. And if they were all written down, I suppose the whole world could not contain the books that would be written. All right. Next one, C. Sometimes there's ignorance of how eyewitnesses work. Do you realize that if there's an event that happens and all of the eyewitnesses give the exact word-for-word account of what they saw happen, do you realize there is an investigation into them for complicity? Because no two humans have ever seen the same thing exactly. Our own personalities filter. Our own attentions are caught by different things. And so many people, they look at the gospels and they go, wait, well, this gospel says this, this gospel says this. So the gospels are fraught with errors and contradictions. And it makes it look like the error, the gospels were all copied off each other years and years after the life of Christ. But you know, over the last 50 years, or so, A great number of significant scholars at doctoral levels have risen to great academic heights presenting fresh arguments for the reality of each of the gospels and the accuracy of each of the gospels. Did you know we have more ancient manuscript evidence for the life of Jesus than we do for Tiberius Caesar Augustus who was the Roman emperor during the life of Jesus? If you want to have a competition, you can prove Jesus much better than you can prove that Roman Caesar. We have the witnesses of multiple hostile, non-Christian sources attesting to the facts of Jesus, of his life, of his death, and the claim of resurrection. And the Gospels were completed within the lifetimes of the people who are mentioned in the Gospels so they could say, look ask them. They were there. I'll tell you, those people who were mentioned, when it comes down to the the people who witnessed the resurrection, I find that the most interesting part. When they talk about who was there at the resurrection, you'll see that each of the gospels gives a different list. There's a few discrepancies in there. Some people want to say, well, see, the gospels, each of them disagrees with who was there. That's not what's happening. Each of the gospel writers... Is writing to a specific person. The gospels are letters. Personal letters written to people. Specific people. You know if I'm going to take off. And I'm going to write a letter to Tom. And I'm going to tell Tom about some event. I'm going to mention to Tom. People that Tom also knows. I say, Did you know Todd Lewis was there. You know those are people that Tom knows. I'm not going to mention. I don't know. I won't mention Greg if. If. Tom doesn't know Greg. Are you okay? Okay, all right. (laughs) I freaked you out. I saw what happened. (laughs) See, so when you sit in this table or this table or that table, that's like the spit zone. Yeah, I can spit on you and I'll pick on you from right there. So the writers of the gospels are mentioning people who are known by the people who are getting the letters. They're people in common. I mean, you have that every day with Facebook, right? People you may know trying to bait you in. It's also interesting to me that when Matthew makes his list, Matthew only mentions two people. Jewish law requires three people to be witnesses for something to be proven true. Matthew only mentions two. If he wanted to lie about it, he could have made up a third, right? He could have. He could have made up a third, but he didn't. He listed two. And what gives even more credibility to what Matthew says is that under Jewish law, women didn't count as credible witnesses. So not only was he one short on the number of witnesses he needed, he picked two women to do it. Watch this from Luke 24. I'm going to show you male bias here. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and several other women who told the apostles what had happened. Watch the men. Verse 11. But the story sounded like nonsense to the men, so they didn't believe it. See, that's another thing that enhances the authenticity of the Gospels. This, the way that the early church fathers behaved as this all started is embarrassing. If you're gonna write a fake story, you're gonna make yourself the hero, not the fool, right? You're not gonna make fun of yourself. You look at these guys. Jesus took his posse out to pray in the garden of Gethsemane. And what did they do? Did they pray? They prayed like this. God. (laughs) They went to sleep immediately. As they're coming to arrest Jesus, these guys are sleeping. All of Jesus' male followers abandoned him. Peter, one of his closest friends, denied him three times. The Gospels are the absolute worst PR documents you could ever produce for church leaders. I mean, who wants to be forever known as Thomas the Doubter? Hey, who would uh, who wants to be known as the disciple who swore he would die for Jesus and a few hours later is swearing he doesn't know him? N.T. Wright, who's a leading scholar and ancient historian, says that the embarrassing stories upend many of the arguments used to discredit the resurrection. Some suggest that Jesus didn't actually die, that he just fainted. He just passed out from the pain. And when they put him in the grave, the coolness of the grave, the coolness of the cave they stuck him in, just simply revived him. Listen, Roman soldiers knew how to kill. That was what they did. And when it came to dealing with messiahs, because the Jews had a lot of different guys claiming to be messiahs, especially the Maccabees bunch, what a bunch of clowns. I mean, every time a Maccabees got killed, another one would take over. It was just an amazing thing. They were like, they were just, they were, it was like whack-a-mole with, them, with the Maccabees. But the Romans knew how to crucify. They had it down to a fine art. Sometimes crucifying a thousand people at a time. They knew what dead was. And before a criminal could be taken away from crucifixion, two Roman soldiers who were coroners had to prove, had to verify that the body was in fact dead. And then because Jesus was hated by the Jews, they insisted on two coroners to prove he was dead too. So they all knew what dead was. And in historical Jewish Messiah movements, when a leader was killed, the followers would immediately find a new Messiah. The natural person, the heir apparent for that is going to be James, the brother of Jesus. But James never claimed to be the new Messiah and nobody ever claimed that he was. In fact, what happened was James and everyone else went to the death. They went to their graves believing and testifying that Jesus Christ had come back from the dead. You know, you get in the light of the Jewish context and historical evidence, and it is clear that the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ was not metaphorical. In Jewish culture, resurrection always meant a return to life after being dead for a period of time. Many Jews believed the resurrection was going to happen, but they didn't believe it was going to happen until Judgment Day. So they were surprised when in the middle of history, instead of at the end of history, in the middle of history... A resurrected body came back. They didn't know what to do with that. And even though Jesus warned his disciples he would die and be raised, none of them believed it until they saw it with their own eyes. In 2018 there was an MIT professor named Ian Hutchison who published a book called Can a Scientist Believe in Miracles? He was not raised Christian but he came to Christ when he was an undergraduate at Cambridge University. Now, years later, after decades of scientific work at the highest levels in this, his answer to can a scientist believe in the resurrection is an emphatic yes, because the evidence supports it. All right, so what do you do with this today? We covered a lot of information. Some parts of scripture are obviously metaphors. And you can see that in their message and in their intent. They are basic. Those are almost superficial. They're just there and you see them. Other parts of scripture, yeah, they're a little more complicated. And what they're doing is God is inviting us to move past the milk level and do a little bit of study, do a little investiture of time and look a little bit deeper in. You have some scripture that's great introductory stuff. Some that's very simple. Even brand new believers can get it. But then you've also got an opportunity where God is calling you to study and move your relationship with him to a more mature level. Do we accept scripture literally? The parts that are literal. (laughs) And the parts that are metaphors and figurative. We believe the truth that they teach as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to come and talk today about a tough thing where a lot of people want to ridicule scripture and they want to mock us for claiming we believe it. Or they want to say, well, I believe this part, but I don't believe this other part. Father, help us to move beyond the beyond the bottle fed part of following you help us to move into the part where we can begin eating solid food spiritually which by the way folks is a metaphor (laughs) where we can grow where we can be nourished by deeper truths that are in your word father lead us through your spirit through your word and through the the wiser, more mature believers around us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.